we are at week two in uh, this study of God's big picture. Um, does everyone have a notebook? If you don't have a notebook, we have we made up some additional copies and we can get you one. Okay, everybody has one, and you should have um, a set of notes for this week. Need a couple up here. Thank you, thank you. Anybody else need one? Yeah, you're supposed to bring your notebook and put... Oh, that's right. Then you need a notebook. We can get you a notebook. We need a couple. Do we have a couple of notebooks? All gone again. Okay. All right. Well, you should. If you need a notebook, we'll get you a notebook. Um, but you should have a, a set of notes, just a simple outline. What is the Bible about class two? The original design, the pattern of the kingdom, which is what, what we want to, um, want to look at tonight. Um, and, and by the way, we, um, we are recording these. It was uh, requested last week that we um, keep a permanent record of this. So if, uh, if, you, if you want the recording, we'll, we'll just post these at the website. You can get to them at the website. And if you need copies made for any reason, I think we can do that as well. All right, so we are at, we're at week two. Just, uh, just really quickly, what, what we're doing is uh, walking through um, the, the, the great story that unfolds across the pages of Scripture, uh, and it is the story of God's, really, of God's purpose uh, of redemption, his purpose to, to redeem and restore um, everything that is ravaged and affected uh, because of sin and the fall, and we last week uh, just sort of outlined the the basic architecture uh, of the Bible, and um, that basic architecture is this is this four act play: creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And of course, the act in the play about which we're the most concerned is the third act because we find ourselves in it. And it is the act that begins, uh, as we'll see, um, beginning in a couple of weeks, it's the act that begins with the first promise of Scripture in Genesis 3.15, where uh, after the fall, God promises that from the seed of a woman, one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. In the process of crushing the head of the serpent, this seed of the woman will be bruised, but in his being bruised, uh, the serpent will be overcome, evil will be crushed, evil will be eradicated from, from God's realm, and that will all lead at the end, and finally, to, to this great and completed restoration, or what we call the consummation. So, creation, fall, redemption, and that third act has two scenes, right? The Old Testament is scene one, uh, what we call, referred to as promise, it's looking forward to the promised Messiah. And then when the Messiah comes, uh, the second scene of that third act is fulfillment. Christ comes in fulfillment of everything that is promised in the Old Testament. We looked at Luke chapter 24, Jesus uh, in that, uh, those two conversations with the disciples along the road to Emmaus and then back in Jerusalem with all of the disciples directing their attention to the whole of the scriptures, uh, the Psalms, the prophets, Moses, uh, every place you go in the scriptures, uh, it is pointing us in the direction of, uh, of Jesus. And uh, so now what, what we want to do this evening is just is begin to begin to fill in the gaps, fill in this timeline. And uh, where we're going to begin is with and we're going to use the language of Vaughn Roberts in this book, God's Big Picture. We're going to use the language and the categories that he uses. Um, we're going to begin with creation, which is the kingdom pictured. Um, and and what, you know, what we're suggesting here as we do this is that one way to think about 
um, the unfolding story in the scriptures is in terms of the kingdom of God. And it's a, it's a very legitimate way to think about this unfolding story. And so tonight, as we look at the creation, we're looking at a picture of the kingdom. This is the way life is supposed to be, the kingdom pictured, uh, Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, I've used, uh, in the notes for you, I've used uh, the basic headings that uh, Vaughn Roberts uses in his book. Um, and what I'd like to do is just is just kind of march through those headings and um, uh, just talk about them a little bit um, as we look at the kingdom pattern in Genesis 1 and 2. So uh, presumably you've got a Bible. Um, you can take a look at Genesis 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. Point number one, God is the author of the creation. God is the author of the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, it's interesting. Um, I, I find it interesting. I think I've mentioned this before. I, I, maybe, maybe not, but I think I have. It's, it's interesting to me that the Bible doesn't begin with an argument for the existence of God. It simply begins with a declaration that God exists, right? It's, it's, I mean, in a certain sense, it is an apology or a defense for the existence of God. But Genesis 1.1 is simply a declaration. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's, you know, there is an affirmation here that before, in the beginning, and this is to use... Um, language that you've, you've heard me use, and I stole from Francis Schaeffer, before in the beginning, there was the infinite personal God, the triune God, who was really there. Um, every account of reality has to account for the fact that something exists as opposed to nothing, right? Um, you, you all know Bill Cosby, right? Do you remember, you remember the... the you guys wouldn't remember this, but some of you might remember the old LP, the Bill Cosby thing. Why is there air? And you remember he's kind of all akimbo on this cart, you know, kind of going down. The... Why is there air? I mean, why is there anything at all? Why is there something rather than nothing? Every account of reality has to account for the fact that something exists as opposed to nothing. And, and the next question then becomes, what is sufficient to account for everything as it is? The complexities of the world in which we live. And not just the material world, the physical things that you can see. Whether it's, I talked about this a little bit in the inquirer's class this morning. Whether it's very delicate, beautiful little flowers or or the majesty of the Rocky Mountains or the Swiss Alps? What is it that accounts for all of that diversity? What is it that accounts, what is sufficient to account for the diversity and the interdependencies in the creation? And, and then beyond the seen kinds of things, the material and physical kinds of things, what is it that is sufficient to account for things like our longing our longing for peace, our longing for justice. What, what, is, what is sufficient to account for things like, like love? Um, and, and why is it? What is sufficient to account for the fact that certain advertising commercials just grip us and, and, and we may not have words to express it, but we say somewhere in there, that's, that's really the way things are supposed to be. Um, Zach sent me um, um, a link a couple of weeks ago of a Guinness beer advertisement, right, of all things. I mean, I think you can YouTube this and you can find it. And it's a picture of six guys in wheelchairs playing wheelchair basketball. Have you seen this? 
And they get to the end of the game, and they're having this conversation about how great it was, and we'll get together next week. And five of the guys get out of their wheelchairs, but the sixth one doesn't, because he's confined to a wheelchair. And the whole, I mean, it's just such a perfect picture of loyalty and friendship. Frankly, it's a glorious picture of the incarnation, right? Now, why is it? What is sufficient to account for the fact that when we see something like that, there's something on the inside of us that says, that's right. That's right, right? Well, Genesis gives us an answer to all of those questions and and tells us that before in the beginning, the infinite personal God was really there. and, And the fundamental and basic explanation for why anything exists at all and for why things exist as they do is the prior existence and the eternal existence of God who created all of these things and created with all of this diversity and interdependence. So God is the author of the creation. Um, Hebrews 11, verse 3, uh, tells us, I think it's verse 3, it's verse 2 or 3, uh, tells us that we, that, that 11th chapter, you know, is that great catalog of faith, right? By faith, by faith, by faith. Um, Hebrews 11, 2 or 3, tells us that by faith, we accept that God created the worlds not out of things that are seen, but actually created the worlds, created everything out of things that are not seen. And this is what the theologians refer to as creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Now, it's not nothing, nothing, because something existed before the creation, and that something is the invisible an eternal God. But God spoke into existence everything that we see, creation ex nihilo, not depending upon pre-existing matter. Right? You know, you know the story of the conversation between the scientist and God about the creation of life? You know this little, little story? No, you don't. Okay. God and the scientist are having a conversation, and the scientist says, I can create life. And so God says, all right, let me see you do it. So the scientist picks up some physical material, and God says, oh, stop right there. Not with my dirt. (laughs) Not with my dirt. Right? God speaks everything that exists into existence. And and this, here's just the second thing that that, um, I'd, I'd just like for you to observe. Maybe you've seen this. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then verse 3, the first part, and God said. Uh, Just notice, I mean, I think we can see this sort of looking back through um, the incarnation, through uh, the life, death, uh, the cross of Christ. We can look back through the person and work of Christ to Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3, and you can actually see the Trinity at the creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said. God spoke, right? God spoke words. Um, And so how does God, who creates the heavens and the earth, how does he create He creates by word and spirit. The spirit hovering over the face of the deep, the disordered, formless, void, dark deep. He creates as the spirit hovers and as word is spoken. Word and spirit come together in verses 3 and following. And the creation comes into existence, ordered and glorious. John 1.1 reminds us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And apart from the Word, nothing has come into existence that now exists. 
So it is through the Word, the eternal Word, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, in conjunction with the Spirit, that the creation comes into existence. And that's... um, I think, again, some, you know, some of you have heard me say this, but I think that really sets a very significant kind of trajectory, not only for our understanding of God's works in creation, but also for our understanding of God's work in redemption. And we're actually going to come to this next week in looking at Romans 12. How does God accomplish his work of redemption? By word and spirit. The Word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, who is clothed with the Spirit at his baptism and who conducts his ministry and carries out his ministry as Word clothed in Spirit. How does Jesus continue to do his work of ministry in and through the church? It's by Word and Spirit. It is by his Word being heralded and proclaimed in the power of the Spirit. When word and Spirit come together, things begin to happen. That's, you know, um, oh, I can never remember her name. The author of uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Annie Dillard. That's why Annie Dillard, I think it's in that book, says, you know, if deacons really understood what was going on at a service of worship, they'd hand out crash helmets instead of bulletins. Because when word and spirit come together, things start to happen. And that's what you see um, in Genesis 1. So God is the author of creation. Um, He has authority with respect to his creation. I don't know if you've ever made this connection, but author... And authority, obviously, they derive from the same, same word, same term. He is the author of creation, and he has authority with respect to his creation. Um, so, he is also the king of creation. And, um, and this is really a fun thing, um, to see how Genesis 1 is structured to show God as king and lord over his creation. And it, and it, Genesis does this, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does this uh, in a couple of ways. Um, we, we read on day four, um, verse uh, 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Here, here's the significance of that. I mean, it's, it's, it's not only significant that God has power sufficient to create in this vast expanse of the heavens all of these heavenly bodies, stars uh, and, um, uh, and planets and all of these things that fill, you know, the, the countless, virtual countless number of these, um, these heavenly bodies. But in its, in its setting, in its original setting, it's important to remember that the sun and the stars were objects of worship for the Egyptians and for the Mesopotamians. One of the central gods of the Egyptians was the god Ray, the sun god. Now, what's being said here? Right? I mean, remember where Israel is. Remember where they've been. Where have they been when they received this, this revelation from God through Moses for them? They've been in Egypt, right? They've been surrounded by the polytheism of Egypt. They're well acquainted with Egyptian gods and well acquainted, well acquainted with the god Ray. So what is God saying to Israel in this, in this narrative of the creation, he's basically saying they are no gods. <laughs> they are not gods. The gods of the Egyptians 
you're coming from, the gods of the Mesopotamians, the gods of the Canaanites, they are, they're not gods. They may be worshipped locally, but there is only one true God, and he is your God. And he, in fact, is the creator of the sun and the moon and the stars, all of these heavenly bodies. And it's interesting in these verses that the word rule is used. And we'll come back to this in just a second. Um, That the sun rules the day and the moon and stars rule the night, right? Well, they don't rule independent of the one who has created them, has authority over them, and as Hebrews 1 verse 2 tells us, upholds all things by the word of his power. The sun, the moon, and the stars continue to exist, continue to be in their places for one reason. The infinite personal God who created them, and the infinite personal God who by his providence continues to uphold them and sustain them and keep them in their places. So, um, that, that's just the first thing. God is communicating something about himself to Israel as Israel finds herself uh, between Egypt and Canaan, God reminding Israel that there, there is only one God, and he is that one God, the creator of the ends of the earth. But then here's the second thing, and this, this is really fun. Um, the structure of Genesis and the movement and flow of Genesis obviously moves from day one through day six. But notice this. Notice in day one, verses three through five, God says, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So day one and I've just used, used, you know, this language. Day one shows us the realm of day and night, right? Or the kingdom of day and night in verses three through five. But then notice what happens on day four, going back to verses 14 and following. God creates rulers to rule over the realm of day and night. And those rulers, and the word rule is used in the text, isn't it? That the sun rules the day, and the moon and the stars rule or govern the night. So, realm, ruler... Day two, verses six through eight, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and morning a second day. So here you have heaven. And then um, verses verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called the seas and God saw that it was good. So you have heaven and you have earth. Or I'm sorry. I'm getting out of myself. You have the heavens above on day two and the seas beneath, on day two, and then on day three, you have the earth, or the fertile earth. And then on day day four, verses 14 through 18, the moon and the stars to rule over the day and night. And then verses 20 to 23, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. 
So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. So for the heaven and the seas, there are the fish and the birds. Okay? And then you come to day six, verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. God saw that it was good. And then verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So on day six, the animals are created to populate this realm, the realm of the fertile earth, with man, male and female, created to exercise dominion, to exercise rule with respect to all of it, right? Now, there's, see, there's a theme that's emerging here. And what's the theme? I and mean, what is this leading us to? Well, the whole flow and movement, it seems to me, of Genesis, uh, uh, the, the days of creation in Genesis 1, the whole flow of this is to lead us in the direction of the ultimate rule and governing of God through mankind as he exerts his rule and reign as king over the whole of the creation. That seems to me to be a kind of a central theme here. God wants us to understand that he ultimately is the king, and point three, that human beings have a distinct and unique role in the creation. As the apex, at the apex of creation, man made in the image of God is made to exercise dominion with respect to the whole of the creation, but not independent of God, right? We're to exercise that dominion, exercise that rule and reign in submission to God as the great king and lord of the whole creation. So it's just... You know, it's just a, a very interest, very interesting, the language that's used in Genesis 1, 3 through 25. And it's very interesting the way Genesis 1 is structured to move us in the direction of seeing God as the great king over his creation, the one from whom everything comes into existence and by whom everything is sustained, who exercises his kingship in a gracious way so that the whole of the creation enjoys the blessing of God's rule and reign with human beings at the apex of creation acting as vice regents, image bearers of God who bear his glory um, before the rest of the creation. And then this fourth thing, the movement and flow of the creation is in the direction of rest of shalom. Um, Roberts makes a great point, um, if you read uh, the chapter for this week, that the chapter division at the end of verse 31 is an unfortunate chapter division. The chapter division really should come, uh, if you're going to create a, a division, it really should come at the end of day th- uh, verse 3 of chapter 2. Because the six days of the creation um, move in the direction of the seventh day in which God rests from all of his labor and God blesses, having blessed the creation through the man and the woman, now God blesses the seventh day and makes it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in the creation, Genesis 2-3. Um, and, and, you know, you, you say, well, what is this rest thing? Um, <laughs> when our youngest daughter was um, probably first or second grade, she, she, she drew these pictures of the days of creation, right? Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. 
She got to day seven, and she drew a picture of a bed with, with nobody in it that you could see, but with one of those little bubble things coming up from the picture, or from the pillow, you know, one of those, and it, was, it had a bunch of Z's in it, right? The invisible God having a rest from the hard work of creation. Well, you know, sweet, but I mean, I think we understand, don't we, that God doesn't take naps. He doesn't, he doesn't rest in that sense. No, he, he finishes his work and he blesses his work and his rest is his entering into the enjoyment of what it is that he's made, right? His entering into um, a, a pleasure that he has, if you will, accomplished what he set out to accomplish. Uh, it's very interesting that throughout the days of the creation, um, as God is engaged in this particular creative work, this particular creative work, um, he gets to the end of his creative activity, verse 31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Um, and I just would point out to you that the, that the term good is just packed with, with real theological significance. Um, and what it, what it really is saying to us is that the creation is exactly what God wanted for it to be, as a means by which to put his own glory on display. The creation is, 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 is exactly as God intended for it to be, as a means by which to put his own glory on display. And God looked at that and said, this is it. This does it. This conveys, um, as Psalm 19 um, uh, puts it, or as Romans 1 puts it, uh, this creation speaks both of the fact that I exist and of what I am like. Right? Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul tells us that all of humankind is without excuse before God because God has made himself known in the things that he has made. And what is revealed in those things? That he exists and his invisible attributes, what he is like. So you look at the creation and you see, as I mentioned at the beginning, you see indications of God's tenderness, his delicacy, his beauty, his compassion, and you see indicators of his great majesty and glory and everything in between. And you see indications of inter interdependence and interconnectedness. And all of that conveys to us truth about who God is. God looks at it and he says, that's very good. And then on the seventh day, he enters into the enjoyment of what it is that he's made. And the prospect for us, as Roberts points out in the book, the prospect for us, the prospect for the Christian, now because of the work of Jesus Christ in redemption, right? The work of Jesus Christ in redemption. The prospect now for us is that we, by virtue of our faith in Christ, have the hope and the prospect of entering into the full enjoyment of his finished work of redemption, right? just as uh, the Father entered into the enjoyment of his completed work uh, in the creation. And um, it, it'd, be, it'd be great to go off and talk about, uh, about that, but just a couple of comments about that. Um, this idea that, that the prospect for the Christian is entering into the enjoyment of the finished work of Christ that's what we gather together for worship, expecting to gain a taste of. Right? A worship service is way more than a Bible study with music and a few prayers thrown in. Uh, a worship service is a, is a connection, a corporate connection of the people of God 
to their creator, redeemer. And in that setting, we come with the expectation that we will have a taste, a taste of the eternal rest that Christ has secured for us. It's what we should pray for. It's what we should come uh, as we come week by week expecting. Okay, so God is the author of creation. God is the king and ruler of creation. Human beings are at the apex of the creation, appointed by God. This is Genesis 1, 26 to 30, uh, to be his vice regents, if you will. He, he commissions them. Verse, verse 28, he blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Um, so they are created, placed in the garden, as Genesis 2 describes for us, placed in the garden uh, to extend the rule and the reign of God out into the garden and ultimately to the whole of the earth so that the whole of the earth is filled with God's glory. And um, the final outcome of all of this, the final outcome of God's creative work and now Christ's redemptive work uh, is rest and shalom. Okay? So, real quickly now, because I want to leave time for you to respond and ask some questions. There are some what I call motifs that that tie this kingdom story together. And you actually see those motifs, these five motifs, um, in the account of the creation, Genesis 1, and the elaboration of that account uh, in Genesis 2. And the five motifs are these. I have five of them. Um, if you look at... Um, Robert's uh, book on page 33. I'll, I'll send him an email and tell him he can improve on this a little bit. You know, um, but you, but you see him, you see him capturing this, and, and this actually um, these these five motifs. I don't know where he got uh, his thinking about this, um, but uh, but this this way of thinking about the kingdom of God. Um, actually, um, I, I sort of learned from Bruce Waltke in his Old Testament theology um, and his commentary on Genesis. Um, but on the bottom of page 30, 33, as um, uh, Roberts kind of depicts for us or summarizes for us the pattern of the kingdom, he uses these four identifying features, God's people, God's place, God's rule, and God's blessing. Um, well, I want to I kind of enlarge that to, to five motifs. And those five motifs, what you kind of have to have if you're going to have a kingdom, you have to have people, right, if you're going to have a kingdom. You have to have a place. You have to have a ruler. And you have to have law or rule governing that kingdom. Um, and I know the last time I taught this, I think I made the observation that you can have a kingdom and just have those four things, people in a place with a ruler governing through law, but it's not necessarily a happy place. right? Just ask people who have lived under the rule and reign of Robert Mugabe, or who lived under the rule and reign of Idi Amin. It was a kingdom, people in a place with a ruler and law, but it was not a happy place. What distinguishes the kingdom of God from every other kingdom on the face of the earth is this fifth thing, and that is shalom. It is God's blessing or prosperity. And you see those five things um, in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, you see God the king ruling. You see people and the prospect of more people. You see Adam and Eve, but you see them being blessed by God. And when God blesses something, he, he is, in effect, ensuring that, that the thing that he is blessing will fulfill the purpose for which it was created. He's ensuring that the man and the woman will be fruitful 
He's commanded them to be fruitful, but in blessing them, he is ensuring that they will be fruitful. So you have a king, you have people in a place, and you have those people in that place enjoying shalom, prosperity, this pervasive, um, universal sense of well-being. And, and Roberts in the chapter um, delineates that a little bit on pages um, 31 and following, uh, 32, where, where he, he identifies the different relationships that are at peace, that are at rest in the original creation. God and human beings are in harmony with one another. The man and the woman are in harmony with one another. Human beings and the creation are in harmony with one another. Everything is copacetic. Everything is enjoying uh, the blessing of God. And I've mentioned that there are five things, a ruler, people living in a place, enjoying prosperity. There is also God's rule or God's law, God's law word, which you find in Genesis 2, 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So, so there is God um, giving his word to govern and regulate the lives of his people for their well-being and for his good. So you have these five motifs, and I think I've included them in the notes. People, place, prosperity, or shalom, rule, and ruler. A seed, the land, blessing, law, word, and king. And just just one last um, passage for you to look at for just a minute, just so you know that, that these really are motifs that continue through uh, we'll look at uh, we'll look at passages next week that that uh, and I'll I'll point this out to you again, but just so you you know that these really are motifs that sort of tie this story together, um, that are characteristics of the kingdom. You know, if you look at First Kings four, verses twenty through thirty four. And you, you'll remember, maybe you'll remember from, from last week that we're, when we come to 1 Kings 4, we're way down the storyline here. And we're really, in the reign of Solomon, we are at the, at kind of at the apex. This, this is as good as it gets in the Old Testament, okay? Everything leading up to this sort of builds to this moment. And, and from this point forward, it's just not so good, right? But, but this, this passage, 1 Kings 4, uh, this description of Solomon, the son of David, uh, and his rule and reign, listen for these five motifs, okay? King, or ruler, rule, his word, governing, uh, directing, uh, giving guidance to people, uh, people, living in a place, enjoying prosperity. Okay? So I'm just going to read it, and you can hear it. You can see it. You can pick them out. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. Sounds like people. They ate and drank and were happy. Sounds like prosperity, right? Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And then you get in these next verses um, a, a bit of a description of the extent of the prosperity that Solomon enjoyed uh, in his day. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal Ten fat oxen, twenty pasture-fed cattle, a hundred sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. There was a 
restaurant that I went to one time in Nairobi, Kenya. It was called the Carnivore. And all they served was meat. That's all they served. And this is what they served. They served ostrich. They served alligator, crocodile. They served roebuck. They served Thompson gazelle. They served, I mean, it was just all meat. They put a little thing in the center. If you want a potato, you can have a potato. But it was all meat. Sounds like Solomon's deal. For he had dominion over all the region of the west of the Euphrates, from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all sides around him. Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So each person had his own little parcel of ground, right? And Uh, in peace and safety and prosperity. Verse 26 uh, is troubling. If you want to know why, I'll tell you. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. The officers supplied provisions for King Solomon, for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking, barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds. They brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. Then verse 29 And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. So what do you you have in in 1 Kings 4? Well, you've got a picture of the kingdom. You've got a picture of the way things are supposed to be. Now, were things the way they were supposed to be? That's where verse 26 um, is, is important. No, this is a wonderful picture um, of the way things are supposed to be. It corresponds in so many ways to the pattern of the kingdom that you see in Genesis 1 and 2. But if you do some cross-referencing from verse 26 of 1 Kings 4, you'll end up back in Deuteronomy, and you will hear God saying, to his people, that kings are not permitted to amass horses for themselves. Why is that? Because horses, symbols of strength, used in armies to pull chariots, to move soldiers, King, by that command, the kings in Israel are being warned not to build armies because the temptation and danger for a king is to put his trust in the strength of a horse and shift his allegiance from trusting in God to trusting in his own resources. That's what got David in trouble. Remember at the end of his life when David numbered, David got in more trouble for numbering his army than he did for committing adultery with Bathsheba and conspiring to have Uriah put to death. Because David's allegiance to the Lord was shifting from trust in him to trusting in the strength of a horse. So this looks good, but there's a very sobering note, a dissonant note that is sounded in 1 Kings 4. But having said that, again, these themes are there, and as we, as we make our way down this timeline, we're going to see them uh, again and again, these motifs that tie this story together. People, place, prosperity, rule, and ruler. And by the way, what does Solomon's name mean? Peace. It derives from the Hebrew word for shalom. So it's a picture, right? It's a picture. Incomplete, imperfect, but it's a picture um, of the kingdom uh, in, its, in its beauty, in its glory. Okay, so let me stop. Uh, we've got a few minutes. I'd love for you to say I have no idea what you just talked about for the last 50 minutes. Actually, I'd, I'd hate that if, if you said that, but if... That's what you want to tell me. Tell me. Any any comments or questions? 
We're just getting started here. But, um, or from last week? Any questions? Comments? Thoughts? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's a right, there's a there's a definite structure to to the days of the creation. And and again, it's not and I I do really do think that Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is doing this to reinforce a point, right? To reinforce this point that God is king and ruler over everything, having given us an extraordinarily privileged position as as vice regents to rule in his place. Okay? This feels way too much like school. I don't know. All right, I hope this is helpful. It's, I, I love this stuff. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun, and um, we'll keep telling the story next week. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you. Um, thank you so much for your word. Um, and, and I do pray that this, this great drama, this great unfolding drama would, would really capture our hearts. And, and, and most especially, I, I do pray that we'd, we'd, just, we'd marvel that by your grace, because of your grace, lavished upon us in Jesus Christ, you've, you've made this story to be our story. You've gathered each of us up into this story so that this really is our story. Um, Lord, forgive us when we get fixated on our little stories and, and lose sight of that to which we've become attached because of Jesus. Um, Lord, help us as we move into this week. Um, by your grace, uh, more and more, uh, to, live, to live faithfully, uh, to move in the direction of conformity with the image of Jesus, uh, being citizens of your kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Um, so help us, uh, we pray. And Bring us back together again next Lord's Day that somehow by your grace we might, we might have a taste of the rest that awaits us at the consummation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.